Welcome. I'm Gretchen Keith-Steidel, and this is Synergo's Cultivate the Soul podcast, stories of purpose-driven philanthropy from around the world. Over this 10-part series, we explore together the intersection of contemplative practice, spirituality, philanthropy, and social impact. Join us as we dive into the personal journey of each guest and what they have discovered about the role of inner work on one's capacity to change the world. To learn more about each of our guests and view our full episode list, please visit synergos.org slash podcast. My name is Bo Xiao. I think what makes a purpose-driven philanthropist is for this person to know who they really are and for the purpose to come from the deeper place within himself or herself. Today we're joined by Bo Xiao, co-founder and chairman of Evolve, a philanthropic organization composed of both a foundation and an impact investment firm. Evolve supports nonprofit and for-profit initiatives that support the evolution of consciousness, often through innovative use of technology. Bo Xiao's also considered one of China's most successful young entrepreneurs, having co-founded China's leading e-commerce company, EachNet, and Matrix China, a $4 billion technology venture capital firm. His full bio is available on our podcast website. Welcome, Bo. Thank you. So I'd love to begin by asking you to tell us a little story. Can you tell us a story from something from your childhood that was instrumental in shaping your earliest worldview of, of what matters? Mm. One story that definitely has left an impression on my soul was uh, when I was roughly, I think I was in fifth grade, so I was about 11 years old. And I think one evening, my father brought back home a bottle of ketchup. Um, and back then in China, this is the 1980s, we were very poor. Everybody was very poor. So ketchup was the first, it was the first time I saw ketchup. So I stole some taste of it. I got a spoonful and tasted it. And my father was very upset. He really severely scolded me and might even have punished me physically. I don't remember because he thought that was, he said, this is for cooking only. You're not supposed to play with it or eat it. So I think I was pretty sad about it. But then a couple of days later, I came home. I saw him in a really good mood for some reason. And actually, I must up the courage to ask him whether I have another taste, which is very unlike me, by the way, because I was already, already taught a lesson not to get it. But he looked so happy that I said, okay, oh, let me have a taste of it. And he, he said, he his answer really surprised me. He said, Bo... Well, my nickname was Shao Boy. You can have as much of ketchup as you want. And that totally shocked me. So I can't remember even whether I tasted it or not. But I must have must have tasted it again. And during the process, my father uh, and also kneeled down or bent down and hugged me. That was apparently for no reason. I remember exactly where it happened outside of my outside of our kitchen. Um, and then later on, I found out that I won a fairly major math competition. 
it was the first time actually in my life that I was, I think it was number one in Shanghai, that time the city of 15 million people or something like that in a math competition. And I think, I think it shaped my worldview in a couple of different ways. One was that like I actually could really, I'm smarter than I think, than I thought. Uh, that actually I didn't spend that much effort, but I was far and far away the number one sort of uh, student, uh, sort of com competitor, you know, in in uh, in that competition. And the second was that was the second one is less well articulated, but nevertheless it's in the subconscious for all my life is that my performance really matters in my own personal safety and how my father would treat me. Because I don't remember many of these sort of uncalled for tender moments, if you will. Um, and uh, I was really shocked. Um, and, uh, and also since then, you know, before that, I felt sort of unsafe because my father had a big temper. He, and he sort of flared up unpredictably, sometimes would scold me, sometimes would hit me. And ever since I started winning mass competition, starting from that particular one, I felt much safer, that he was more considerate. Uh, he was more careful. Um, and I felt special. Um, and um, that was a impression that um, really has... Uh, has you know get also became reinforced many many times down the road as well. So that moment of celebrating you with ketchup really solidified the sense of of performance and achievement as not only accepted expected but but delivers safety too. Mm -hmm. Yes. So later, I heard you say in an interview that what I fund now is very different from what I would have funded 10 years ago because I started to find my more authentic self. So I'm curious from that moment of recognition that performance and achievement is so critically important to who you are and the environment around you to this place of having found your authentic self, what shifted, what changed, and, and what did you discover? Hmm. It's a great question. It's hard to answer. First of all, I would say that I wouldn't say that I have found my authentic self. I think it's a process that will last an entire lifetime and beyond. It's like peeling an onion. There are layers and layers of structure and beliefs and patterns and habits that have made us, you know, to, into who we are today, you know, in the world. And so to sort of doing this deep dive of peeling layer by layer takes a lot of time. And it's, it's an unending process of discovery. So I'm you know, halfway through it, I hope. Um, but there's still a long way to go. And I'm not sure really I will ever get to act out of my true self all the time. Uh, I think it's actually hard to describe what one's authentic or true self is without resorting to very spiritual or woo-woo language. <laughs> and I tried not to use it because I was a physics major and tried not to use woo-woo language, but sometimes <laughs> there's no choice. But, you know, but I'll give you an example of one 
thing where things come in, came out differently. So my perception of myself for the, during the first 30 years of my life was that I was a computer, that I'm a, I was a rational being, rationality is all that matters. Analytical powers is sort of measure of skills, the only measure of skill set. And my body is in support of my brain. It's basically feeds my brain and carries the brain around. And also feelings and emotions are sort of a wasteful byproduct of evolution. I usually don't feel them. And if I felt them at all, usually I try to suppress it pretty quickly without even realizing that I was suppressing it. And now my perception of myself is very different. That I see that, yes, my mind and my brain is certainly useful and powerful. But I think one good saying is that our analytical mind is a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. What I find is my heart, my body has a lot of intelligence uh, that would tell me what to do. And that that's, to me, probably the more, more important, as and certainly an equally important aspect of myself that I need to get back in touch with. Was there a moment or practice that created that shift in you and coming back into contact with your body, your feelings, recognizing that they're not a wasteful byproduct, that they're actually <laughs> intelligence in some way? Well, I think for, for me, it wasn't a one moment where I realized it. I mean, you read in the news or in books that certain spiritual teachers have these wonderful awakening moments and ever since then they were different for me it's been a very gradual process so there are certainly moments of insight for sure but it's hard for me to point to one step or one particular methodology or practice that lead, led to sort of a before and after kind of black and white picture the practice that i find useful uh, there are many, actually, many of them. The two particular I can mention, one is certainly meditation. I have a regular meditation practice. Not very long. I do 15 minutes a day. I find that just that formal practice of sitting down, quieting the mind, and observing in some ways with no judgment, is a, uh, it's a, it's a very centering process that if I don't do this, if I don't do it for a day, I'll notice it. If I don't do it for three, four days, I definitely notice it. Um, in my daily living. And second one is a practice I call it inquiry. Actually, my teacher calls it, in, you know, it's, it's called inquiry. Um, and inquiry is a little different from meditation. Inquiry happens every single minute of one's life or could happen every single minute of one's life. That's simply looking at what's happening in my life, in my body, in my mind, in my heart right now and observe it and accept it. And what I discovered is so often that it's almost all the time I, and I think most people reject what's actually happening. That there is this kind of avoidance, uh, there is a, could be a judgment, uh, and the judgment could be directed to oneself or could be judgment toward other people. So for example, suppose somebody you know, in the you know, subway does something I don't like, that usually there'll be some kind of judgment and they'll be giving a dirty look or judging this person is whatever. Um, instead, if one simply go toward what is in my body that reacted to this? Is there, do I feel somehow, somehow short of breath? 
Maybe there's some kind of flushing of my, my cheek. Maybe there's some kind of stuckness in the center of my chest. Um, it's not really, just, just feel it. It's hard to describe that once actually one simply feel what one is feeling without judgment, without necessarily acting out on anything, that um, uh, you could call it being present, I suppose. Uh, and I think, um, but then also being curious, like what's happening? Why did I react this way? Right. Um, and, uh, and I find that that to be an incredible long, you know, lifelong practice that, um, that I find myself more and more just doing it almost subconsciously, just not automatically. Um, and I, I find it brings so much freedom and joy in my life. Thank you. That's that's really such a well-explained, concise, and accessible description of, of how to be present in every moment that it it's often takes a lot of practice, but it is also so simple in its prescription. Like just, just notice. Notice what's happening to you in this moment. Yeah. Um, I'll give you one exa- other example I want to share with you. It's like so a few maybe a year ago I was lying down in bed with my older daughter and sometimes we you know they still want us to put them into into bed and so I was lying next to her and I suddenly noticed that this urge to get up to check my phone Hmm. now the good thing I noticed it because I think you know in years before I would have just gotten up and looked at the phone and somehow there's some kind instead what I noticed there's some kind of anxiety like, like I'm not checking something. There, there's also the kind of anticipation, some kind of pleasure by checking email and, and seeing something I can handle right back. There's some kind of a, some kind of a, like both a positive kind of like a taste, but also a, a anxiety that I needed to crunch. Mm. I noticed it. I didn't act on it. I just saw there's some kind of anxiety here. That's interesting. So I didn't act on it. Instead, I just lie back down and be with her. And then this sense of well-being came over me. It's like, this is what I live for, right? Just being with my daughter next to her. She could be talking. She could be not talking, just hearing her breathe. That's what I live for. I mean, the thing people talk about happiness, seeking this, seeking that. This moment is, this moment right here is, you know, what, like, what all the money cannot buy. Right. And I almost missed it. If I just unconsciously got up and just did whatever, I might have gotten a quick dopamine hit or something from checking email, but I would have missed this profound sense of well-being and love and connection. That's almost so simple, but we miss it all the time. You make me curious about something and uh, a, a number of the companies that you have founded and invested in Parent Lab and babytree.com are focused on the importance of parenting and parenting support. So just as this example you're just describing, how has your own journey as a father been uh, an influence in your own personal transformation? Yeah, it's been huge. It's probably the biggest influence. And because I was very resistant to change. I had a worldview, everything's rational, like I'm very successful in that world. And I'm not, and I wasn't unhappy. I wasn't depressed. And why would I change? And so the biggest reason for for me to change 
was when I observed that I was not a very good father. Certainly, I did not enjoy being a father. I felt that was a chore I needed to do. I needed to teach them. I needed to discipline them. There's a role I need to play. But I did not enjoy being a father, just being with my kids. And also, I noticed that in some instances, I was a terrible father. That I repeated some of the mistakes that my father made, even though I hated them when I was the receiving end of those mistakes, including physical punishment, but also shaming, guilt tripping, all sorts of things. Like one of my favorite things my father always had is, why did you just do that? Like, what's wrong with you kind of thing, right? It's a powerful Shaming is one of the most powerful things we can do to motivate behavioral change. And so parents use it when they're desperate or sometimes they get used to using it. But we never say that to a friend. Um, So at least a friend we want to keep. (laughs) So, um, so, um, So I noticed that I was doing all sorts of things that really was not clearly wasn't good for them particularly for my son. And that made me start looking into myself. Um, and um, so for my personal journey, that matters. But also for for the world, I think it really matters. That's the reason we're all interested because I mentioned the peeling these, un- and these layers of onions to find our true self, right? Um, and most of these layers of onions were put in place before we probably even turned 10. Um, And could be even before we were even conscious, before we even could talk. Um, And and I can relate some examples, we had more time, but I noticed that even with my kids and with myself and other people around us is that the parents have such a profound, and this goes without saying, on our children. And there's many positive things uh, but also there are things that, you know, because no parents are perfect. They cannot possibly be perfect. We cannot be present. We cannot be patient all the time, right? And also we sometimes not aware of what's going on in our children's mind. There's a lot more going on there, by the way, than we think. Um, and, um, and so we make mistakes. We are not present enough or we could be too mean sometimes. We could say something we didn't mean in, in, in passing, all sorts of things, or there's certain expectations we have, all sorts of stuff that create these layers. And, and then when people get older, it takes years of work or decades of work to undo sometimes. So if parents can be more conscious and more skillful, then that will save a lot of therapy time down the road. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think also... Um, not just therapy, and they, you know, we pass on these uh, traumas from one generation to the next, or these influences and patterns from one generation to the next generation, next generation, and the world is worse off for it. So it impacts me as a parent, impacts other parents, but also impacts the world in a profound way. So as you began going through your own personal transformation and your own noticing and awareness of your role as a parent. And I think for all of us, we can relate to the circumstances you've described where we're not perfect. How does one's own personal evolution begin to show up in the way that they relate to the rest of the world? And in particular, we're 
really interested in this linkage between inner work and philanthropy and change leadership. And I know you you have some really deep philosophy around the importance of that personal journey and inner work to how we show up in the world and can lead and create positive change. Yeah, uh, let me see. It's a, it's a hard one to explain, though I feel strongly about it. 17 years ago, after I sold my first company, actually 18 years ago, I was 29, I sold my first company and was well, you know, wealthy and had financial freedom and you know, famous and everything. Didn't have to work again. So I thought about philanthropy. So I joined a couple of philanthropic organizations, even joined, you know, joined as a board member, donated some small amounts of money. Because I felt like, well, that's one I need to do. Like, you know, what else is there to do? I got to do this and, and let me explore it. It was, I wasn't deeply connected to what these organizations did. Superficially, from a mind perspective, I was connected. Oh, this sounds really efficient. This would really help some people. Or this is useful to do. So from a mind perspective, analytical mind perspective, I did connect. Otherwise, I wouldn't have donated or joined. But where there's no hard connection. And there was no also thought about what's my theory for change, you know, theory of change. How would I want to manifest my sort of my remaining part of my life in the things that I do? I didn't really think too much about it. It was just, oh, this is a useful thing to do. Let me do it. Uh, instead, now I have a particular worldview of how fundamental change could happen in the world. I have this connection between that worldview versus sort of my daily personal practice and who I am. So I can see a direct line between sort of the, my unique, both my unique skills from a mind perspective, but also my unique, almost like my upbringing, how both the good and the bad, all of these things relate to what we fund and what the mission of the organization is. So when sometimes I look at my calendar and there are seven meetings back to back, I get all tired and good. I don't want to do this. All I needed to do is look at each meeting and say, oh, how to ask myself the question, how did this meeting connect to myself, to who I really am? Why am I doing this for this? And what's nice is in every single meeting, including this one, is connected to who I am and what I want to manifest in this world personally. Right? There's a you know very close connection. So it feels very different. So can you tell us more about your theory of change, your philanthropic mission, and how you're going about it now? Sure. Um, so one of our one of the things we believe in is that change has to happen from the inside. That even things that look like it's an external problem, let's say poverty, it relates to how each individual and then humanity as a whole look at ourselves and, and who do we take ourselves to be. Whether we are very separate individuals living 80 years, trying to maximize our even impact, certainly maximize our wealth and position and whatever, and welfare and our family's welfare, but also maybe maximize our impact on the world kind of thing versus a perspective that, you know, we are like, we are this wave in the ocean 
that the wave is first of all temporary for sure, right? And it's actually hard to see where the wave stops and where the ocean starts. Um, that we are really fundamentally one with everybody else. And this, this sense of separation is a bit of an illusion. I mean, in physics, there's something called a particle wave duality, that an electron is both a particle and a wave at the same time, which is my ball blows the analytical mind. Right? Einstein find it hard to believe even. It's really like, but we have taken a particle view that we all are really separate individuals. But, you know, but waves is, a, is an equally valid, not necessarily more valid, but equally valid perspective. The way it shows up, for example, let's look, up, look at poverty. Right, there is still probably more than one billion people who are, don't have enough nutrition, who don't have enough to eat. Right, and it takes 50, 60 billion dollars to feed them. Um, but you know, look at you know, the United States alone spends more than 50 billion dollars on diet products. So think about that. Right, um, so. Another way to think about it is in the world today, the economy produces close to 3,000 calories per person right now. Our, the entire world food industry produces more than 3,000 calories per person. About 3,000. I think the number changes from year to year. That's certainly more than enough to feed everybody with calor- 1,000 calories to spare, right? But instead, you have a significant percent of you don't have enough calories, right? They cannot get enough simple calories, right? So... Like to solve the poverty problem, you know, it relates to like, how do we look at ourselves? Like how could we, you know, if we take away perspective, it doesn't make any sense, right? But if it's all we're separate, then, then, okay, we need to maximize whatever we have. And um, so and that's a relatively simplistic sort of example, but there is a, you know, whether it's, you know, for me, climate change, everything else. If I keep asking why, it goes down to how we look at ourselves, how we look at our group. There's in-group versus out-group thing. Like, how would, who do we take ourselves to be? Are we a billable on the pool table? Or are we, are we part of a, a wave on the, in the ocean? And both, by, by the way, both aspects, I think, valid. I'm not saying one is more valid than the other, just, but only taking one view is incomplete. And, and I think in this last year, if it hadn't been global warming, here's another example of our interconnection with the way in which COVID pandemic has affected the world. And yet we're still addressing it in such an inequitable ways. So yeah. if we are needing to get at these large scale systemic social issues from the inside out, how does that work? And how does your work through Evolve how is that investing in that kind of world view and perspective shift? Mm, I don't have a master plan. <laughs> so I don't have a sense of what we do. Somehow there's a step-by-step process leading to the world, you know, transforming to a different kind of economic system. or whatnot. I do believe that um, our world economic, political, social memes and structures and system reflect our prevailing view of who we are. So to the extent the prevailing view is that we are separate out to get the maximum for ourselves, which is really underlies the whole Adam Smith, you know, philosophy in some ways, then all the structure we build reflects that, 
including our companies needing to maximize profit, right? including politicians want to remain in office as long as possible. Right? And all these things, um, you know, they want to retain certain power parties, retain this power and control as, as much as we can. And I believe that that system has produced enormous benefits for humanity, by the way. The 3,000 calories per day is, is created by the system. Right? It used to be less than 2,000, you know, 100 years ago, probably. So, however, uh, the, the, the downsides of this system, I think, are showing up in a major way now. And you could argue that maybe some of the downsides are, are, are catching up to the upsides the system has created. So we need a, we need a new system, I believe. I think without a new system, we, we, we might face some kind of extinction event, whether we kill ourselves, each other, or some kind of the earth will kill us or something, um, that um, it will happen within a, I don't know, two, three generations, I think. Maybe even some people will say I'm optimistic. Um, so, um, so we need a new system. I don't know what that new system looks like, what the new political economic system look like. You know, I have no, I'm no Adam Smith. I, I don't know how to invent a new system that has worked so well in certain aspects. But I do think we need a new system. And that system is not possible until significant percent of the population changes or sort of evolve their consciousness. I use the word evolve, meaning because I think that we all capable of evolving our consciousness. Like I certainly didn't think so 15 years ago, but I see myself changing and I, I think I'm, I'm so much, I don't know, first of all, happier and more free, but also, I think more purposeful, more connected to who I really am. It feels really good. But my action also, I think, is better for the world now than certainly if I were to do this 15 years ago. Right? And I think if significant minority of the people in the world are willing to work on themselves, and particularly those people in a position of power, potentially, who actually also have the resources and time, right, is not having to worry about where the next meal coming, comes from, we can start working ourselves and then collectively, I think we'll figure out a new system, whatever that might be. As you've gone about this work and you've found some amazing conscious entrepreneurs uh, to invest in and uh, to support through your philanthropy, what's been the hardest part about doing this work and 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 really trying to invest at the root level of this the evolution of consciousness. What's what's been hard and challenging for you? I think the hardest problem is to measure results. Right. Uh, when you run a pure profit company, everything's very simple, right? I mean, not simple. It's difficult to be an entrepreneur, as anybody who has been an entrepreneur will tell you. But at least you, the goals are very clear. You need to turn a company to profitable. Your various KPIs need to go up, and you, you know, eventually you you need to keep growing at fifty percent a year or more. Blah blah blah. You need to be cash flow positive eventually, etc. But when we get into this space, how do we measure the impact, whether it's a for-profit or non-profit company, right? So for example, like how many people did we reach a, say, meditation app? But there's a difference between simply meditating once every month or even at the end of the day, but not seeing change versus actually is really transforming their lives. How, do you how can you possibly measure that? Right. We ourselves don't even know how to measure. Right? If you tell me, rate my scale from 1 to 10, where I am versus, you know, it's like it's hard, even for oneself, right? So how do you measure your users? So it's really, really the, both the breath, is, you know, the breath is easier, the depth is much harder to measure, right? But then also there are different 
like you know, for example, if you want to have a more of a loving world, which I think is really important, love is something that's really important and close to my heart. How do you measure the spread of love <laughs> in the world? <laughs> you know, that's um, that's uh, you know, virtually impossible, right? So, how do you measure helping a inmate and in their transformation versus helping a billionaire in their transformation? Which one is more meaningful? It's hard to say, right? So. It's just measurement is is the the most difficult thing that we are dealing with. Uh, it resonates with me because I think one of the one of the inherent challenges is the more that we become mindful, um, and are party to this intentional process of transformation, the more we're aware that we need to do. <laughs> so. Yes, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Yes, that's a nice thing that I think it's a bit of an exponential uh, path here that the more we see ourselves, certainly for me, it's been very exponential. In the first 10 years, like any exponential changes go, you see almost no change because my base was so low. <laughs> my self-awareness was so low, it was close to zero. So when no, multiply zero by 10, it still gets zero. So <laughs> exponential change, not, no, add zero, 10 to zero, you get 10, right? The multiple 10, zero by 10, you still get zero. So in the beginning days, it were years. It was very slow going. But then I start seeing changes after a few years and I get more motivated and I start changing, discovering more things that I could be more aware of, etc. And then start getting into a hockey stick. Wisdom 2.0, a few years ago, you spoke about the importance of the heart. And when the heart is open, that wisdom flows through. So for people who are still kind of living in that mind orientation, the cultivation of mind and knowledge, what can they begin to do to shift to a more heart-centered orientation, really make room for the love that you speak of as being so critically important to this journey? Yeah, I think the first thing to realize is that when we open our hearts or shift more attention to our hearts, our intelligence doesn't go away, right? And that's something really important because I was worried about that. It's like, oh, if I act differently, would I somehow become stupid or whatnot, right? And that sounds stupid idea now. <laughs> Why would I? But that was a really worry for me is like, uh, you know, and just so to for street cred, I'll mention like, you know, I was... You know, I was a mass, com you know, I won many national mass competitions in China. All that stuff. My mind is pretty good, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm like some woo-woo person talking about no mind um, and mind not being important. Mind is very important, was very important, and still very important. But finding another source of wisdom. So I think knowing that, hey, just being, having this belief that, you know, my mind is not going away is really, really important. And then I think another useful tool, if you will, is to find a community of friends where you can be vulnerable and open with. And some people doesn't have many, but having one or two or better, 10 or 20, that's even better. But even just a few where one could have real conversations and one can talk about vulnerable things where one say, I don't like myself about this and all that. Instead of showing up in, say, social media, everything is hunky-dory, everything's great, look at how great my life is, um, which is some sort of what social media encourages us to do. I, I think just being, being able to open vulnerable, you can take baby steps 
and then one feels a different kind of connection with another human being when when one can go to a vulnerable place. And uh, I think that's a good start. And then once we have this community we can be a part of, whether it's two people or 15 people, then one then one get this kind of a safety a little bit, right? Our heart is very tender. The reason we close our hearts usually is because whether our parents or, or other friends, you know, when we're growing up, we're not as sensitive to it as they could be, right? I mean, it's true that nobody, you know, it's, we are so sen- we were so sensitive, and we're so open when we were two or three. When one of the reasons we look at a baby, we cannot help but smile because they were so innocent and open and sensitive. So we had this kind of heart in our in, in us, but we had it to lock it down. We had to protect it, right? So don't open up to the world suddenly, you're going to get hurt, right? Don't go to your boss or go to your colleagues and suddenly say, oh, let me, that's, that's a very risky move. Uh, <laughs> high return, but high risk. But you know, find a couple of people that you think you can be open with and it might surprise you. You might be surprised by how they respond. Beautiful. Thank you, Bo. Thank you so much for your wisdom, for giving us a chance to learn more about your own personal journey and how that's influenced your work in the world. And I certainly hope that your invitation to connect more deeply with the heart and be vulnerable will inspire others to do the same. Thank you. Yeah. How would you like to invite people to learn more about what you're doing right now or practices, wisdom, connection? Sure. I can mention a few things. First of all, our website, evolvevf.com. Evolve Venture Foundation, so VF, EvolveVF.com has a list of the nonprofits and the for-profit companies that we have funded. And I think that's a great place to start to the extent that you want to contribute uh, to the field. I think we are pretty selective uh, about the, the, you know, me being a venture capitalist, uh, about the kind of projects we will support. And so we've done some sort of screening, if you will, already. And the second thing, I would say is there are certain personal tools that have worked out really well for me that I can recommend a few here that might be useful. One is meditation. I think um, you know many of you obviously probably have tried meditation. Um, and there, there's many offline retreats like Spirit Rock in, 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 in California is really great. But also online, we have funded a company called Inside Timer, which has several thousand students, uh, several thousand teachers te- teaching hundreds of different traditions of meditation. Um, yeah, people think there's only one meditation. No, there's so many different kinds and fit for different people. So this app is a great way to discover uh, different meditation techniques. In fact, I think there are more meditation minutes spent on Inside Timer than all of the time spent on the rest of the meditation apps in the world added together including calm and headspace. So uh, something to, to discover, I think. So meditation. Uh, the second one, inquiry, I follow a particular school called Diamond Approach. If you search for Diamond Approach, you probably find it. Uh, it's, a, it's not for everybody, to be clear, um, but for people who are scientifically minded uh, and rigorous, this approach, I think, works quite well for inquiry practice. There is a... Uh, a very useful tool that one can apply immediately without having to believe any of the woo-woo stuff or even worldviews is something called nonviolent communication. NVC, nonviolent communication. Look it up. Uh, a, a Marshall Rosenberg invented this. Uh, and importantly, he passed away, but the book is very useful. 
And after you, if you like the book, then going to a workshop or two, I think will change your life. I think I cannot imagine anybody not benefiting from this, whether you want believes in meditation or inquiry or not, or any kind of uh, stuff. So I think nonviolent communication, I highly recommend. Uh, there is a particular type of uh, psychotherapy that I benefit a lot from called internal family systems, IFS, internal family systems. It does not pathologize any kind of uh, mental challenges. It's for, you can, it treats, you know, both pathology, but as well as people are perfectly quote unquote normal. And uh, I've benefited enormously from this particular approach and uh, I highly recommend it. And also it's, it's researched, so it has credibility and science behind it and everything. So, but also very consistent with the spiritual sort of views that I've, that I've have, have science that I've uh, sort of learned. So, uh, so I highly recommend that too. So I think that's probably enough recommendation. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. There's a lot of work to be done and a lot of places to start. Thank you so much for all those ideas and, and wisdom. Cultivate the Soul is presented by Synergos, copyright 2021. To learn more, visit Synergos.org and find more episodes at Synergos.org slash podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever the best podcasts are found. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.